0: fill in the blank this morning. If the church is going to advance the gospel today, it needs to blank. What is it? Blank. It needs to have more church programs, seminars, conferences, books written, gospel tracts, More persuasive preachers, maybe. Not that there's anything wrong with these things, right? Uh, We know God uses them all, but I'm going to submit today that if the church is going to advance the gospel and reach more people, it needs to get real. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we go along. It needs to get real. So, I'll explain what I mean by that after... We work our way through our our passage today, verses 1 through 16 in chapter 28. That's the final chapter in the book of Acts. Can you believe it? Those of you who have been with us, we finally made it, right? Uh, I think it's the 41st sermon or something in the book of Acts, which is actually cruising right along for this book. But uh, we're in the final chapter, not necessarily the final sermon uh, Lord willing, that'll be next week. But in this chapter, the Apostle Paul uh, has a series of encounters with pagans and Christians and Jews. And it really makes for a nice summary or, or synopsis of, of, of Luke's portrait of the Apostle Paul. And just the advancement of the gospel. Um, some are receptive. Some, some you're going to see are receptive to the gospel, and some are going to resist the good news of Jesus Christ. But Paul just continues to minister to to everyone who, uh, and it's through highly through hospitality, uh, hospitality whether it's actually received by Paul, someone receives him, or whether he's giving his own hospitality. So this is also a climactic passage as for just a a long time paul has been wanting to go to rome we've seen that this has been his desire and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for paul to get to rome and he's finally here after years um his desire is going to be fulfilled and uh in our text today he's finally going to reach that destination he's finally going to get to rome Um, remember uh, from last week last week was just an epic adventure at sea it was an, it was an odyssey basically uh paul and luke the, the 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 man who wrote the book of acts and aristarchus and then there's four other other people on this ship prisoners sailors and soldiers they rode out just a violent storm uh on this ship for two weeks before it finally crashed into the island of Malta, and that's where we left off. And so we're going to pick it up here uh, with their wintering at Malta. Verses 1 and 2 say, when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. Extraordinary kindness, for they kindled a fire, and they took us all in because of the rain that it started, and because of the cold and so uh they run ashore running run 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 aground to their ship at at malta the 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 waves are breaking it apart you know and they're all getting to the land by just grabbing onto different pieces of the ship they finally reach it they find out what the island's called and and the the people there actually warmly welcome them uh these 260 people show up on this island and they're they're actually welcomed Uh, By the people who live there and they find out it's it's called Malta or Melita It's an island about 60 miles south of Sicily, which is south of Italy and they're gonna winter here for three months. It's about the island's about 18 miles long eight miles wide just to give you some perspective of the size of this this island that they're on Um, ironically uh, the Malta means refuge or escape and so Luke's playing on words here in verse one when he says they found refuge at refuge, or they found it once. Once they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Escape. It's pretty ironic, but uh, Luke's basically just saying here that the the island was well named, I guess you could say. Anyway, they find themselves welcomed by the Maltese. Uh, they give them a warm welcome. By starting a, a massive bonfire, uh, Luke says that the, the Maltese display extraordinary or unusual kindness through this universal language of hospitality. Even if they don't speak the same language, they're, they're welcomed through their hospitality. The Greek word is philanthropia, it's like philanthropy, you know, love of mankind, uh, unconditional kindness to strangers. That's how you might define it. And as you'll see, it's evident that these these pagan, even these pagan, unbelieving Maltese held the virtue of hospitality in high regard. And so does the Bible. So does God. But another term we should touch on is the word that Luke uses to describe the people there. uh, Most translations say native or islander or the King James barbarian. And uh, that comes from Luke's use of the word barbaroi. Uh, Barbaroi, barbarian, but this doesn't necessarily mean that they were savages, you know, with, you know, the loin coverings and bones through their nose. And, you know, like you'd think of Papua New Guinea or some of these tribes in the jungles of Brazil. This is a term that would have been used to describe anyone who didn't speak Greek or Latin as their native tongue. They were considered uncultural right? Or, uh, what's the word? Uncultured. Uh, Greek or Latin just wasn't their primary language, so they aren't as uncultured as we would think by the use of the term barbarian, but Luke is, at the same time, highlighting the gospel going to the ends of the earth to remote people who don't speak Greek or Latin. I mean, they really are uncultured, and they were essentially canaanites we'll talk about that but canaanites they still did some child sacrifice probably we you can see in some of the archaeological evidence Um, they're not exactly in kansas anymore especially from a jewish perspective home was jerusalem now they're on an island out in the middle of the sea you know with this uncultured people Uh, very strange for a jewish person to end up right and uh, specifically, the people on the island were the Phoenicians, and they would refer to themselves as the Canaanites. And the Phoenicians, or the Canaanites, lived uh, just northwest of Israel there, in what we consider modern-day Lebanon. A lot of the Lebanese today have DNA directly descended from uh, Canaanites. But you're looking at the area of Tyre, and Sidon, and Ugarit, and these, the, the Canaanites developed... Um, as rugged as we seem to think they are in the Bible, in the Old Testament, they actually developed quite a, quite an empire. It was an empire based on trade. They were the ship-faring people of the Mediterranean. And that's how they built their empire. In fact, it spread uh, for a millennium um, all the way over across Spain. And uh, just think of uh, Carthage, right? So the homeland was over here kind of... Here, over here in Tyre and Sidon, but uh, we also know Carthage, right, from the the Punic Wars. And uh, what's his name who rode the elephant? Hannibal, right? I hope some history's coming to mind here. But that's that's who these people are. Their primary language would have been Punic or Carthaginian. Uh, It was essentially a Canaanite language really closely related to Hebrew. That was another uh, Semitic language from the area, from the territory of Israel. In that area, and a couple hundred years before this, though, this this island uh, had come under the rule of Rome. Rome defeated Carthaginians, right? Punic Wars. And uh, archaeological evidence reveals some Greek and Latin were spoken here alongside their, their native tongue. So, uh, again, uncultured but not totally barbarian as we would think of it. But the just to answer the question again that we asked last week, why, why does God allow this storm? I mean, if God's mission is to get Paul to Rome, why does God just seem to frustrate that promise? Is God frustrating his own promise the whole time? The winds are contrary. It takes them forever. There's a storm. Well, last week we saw there's 260-some reasons that God allowed the storm. You had sailors, prisoners, and Uh, soldiers on this ship that were rough and rugged and they needed a they needed a a wake-up call right they needed to be reminded of eternity and and god through that storm provided an opportunity for paul to become just a leading voice among them there's no doubt he shared the gospel with these men on the ship and secondly you also see how god used the storm to get the apostle paul and the gospel to an island out in the middle of the mediterranean to an uncultured people Right, so it's just, you see how God is using the storms of life to do great things. And he's going to fulfill his promise. <laughs> it's, it's amazing uh, what kind of God we have, that he would use all things for, for good. That's who he is. And Paul considered himself, by the way, under obligation to preach the gospel, not only to Greeks, but to barbarians in remote places like this. So it doesn't matter who it is, Paul knows Christ died for them, and he's going to share the gospel with them. That's what he's doing here. And uh, interesting thing, I can't say that they are all gospel preaching, Bible teaching, New Testament practicing churches, but they say that on the island of Malta today, there's over 360 churches on this little tiny island. And the, the saying is that there's a church for every day of the year. So, God got the gospel to Malta, Right? But secondly, we're going to see the miracles at Malta now. The miracles at Malta, verses uh, 3 through 6. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and had laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, Paul shook the creature off into the fire, and he suffered no harm. Now, they were expecting that he was going to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but after they waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god, lowercase g, right? So, well, Paul's, Paul's gathering firewood. He's, he grabs a bundle of sticks. It turns out one of these sticks is alive, right? Or, or just a venomous snake had made its home in a bundle of sticks, just like they would do, right? It's pretty natural for a snake to do, but um, it latches itself onto Paul's hand. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, what in the world? Just difficulty after difficulty after difficulty, right? I would be complaining. I would not have probably been the agent of hope on that ship. I would have been somewhere down in the hole weeping, right, and asking God why. But Paul is just such a a great example for us. He just shakes it off into the fire. And there's no, no record of him whining or complaining. He knows that God has made a promise to him. And that promise was to get him to Rome. And because of who God is, God cannot break his promises. He shakes it off into the fire and just goes about his business. And they're waiting for him to keel over dead. He doesn't die at all. He just, just keeps on Probably gathering sticks, enjoying the warm fire. And uh, the, the islanders, they're, they're a pretty superstitious bunch, right? They, they interpret the snake bite as a sign that Paul is a murderer. That he's guilty of some sort of serious crime, at least. They're thinking in their minds, a life for a life, right? He's guilty of murder, now he's died. He's dead, right? That's the reason why uh, justice allowed this to happen. So even though he survived the storm at sea, divine justice, they say, has not allowed him to live. And many commentators pointed out, and some of your translations affirm this with confidence, that the word justice, uh, DK, D K, D-I-K-E, should probably be capitalized. Is it capitalized in your Bible? It might be. Divine justice, with a capital J. Because the islanders here seem to personify justice. They personify it uh, this tells us i think that the these islanders these maltese were associated with or affiliated with the greek goddess dk the greek goddess of justice so that's what they're saying the greek goddess of justice dk has not allowed paul to live and it's kind of interesting we were Kind of talking about this this morning in a Sunday school class, but Lady Justice, right? Got the scales in her hand and a sword in one hand. Uh, Scales in one hand, sword in the other, blindfolded just to display her impartiality. Well, I hate to say it. I like Lady Justice, but I hate to say, you know, the origins go back to paganism. You know, the. Justice was her name. But. I'm not going to throw her out entirely. I just want to know where it came from, right but uh, Paul here he never dies. he's not phased by it and so it can't be divine justice is not the one in control. She's not the one in control who is It's God. it's Paul's God, Yahweh right Jesus Christ it's He's the one who's showing himself through the storm and through these miracles and different things that he's the one in control. It's that plain and simple. I mean, God just has plans, and God's made a promise. And because God is all-powerful, because God cannot lie, his plans and his promises are going are gonna to be seen through, right? They're going to be realized. That's amazing, isn't it? Remember that with whatever you're going through in life, no matter what happens to you, right, God has his promises to you in Jesus Christ. And he'll see them through. He doesn't fail. He never fails. So, God does this miracle, and uh, I'll tell you, this This reminds me, what happened to Paul, Just this reminds me of what I'm going to call the doctrine of invincibility. I mean, you're, you're in the will of God, you're invincible. Right? Until the Lord says it's time to take you home. Psalm 139 says he knows your first day and your last day before there's even a before you're even born. He knows the day of your birth and the day of your death before you're even come into existence. I mean, that's how sovereign God is over our lives. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to go out and make some harmful decisions and play in the street and jump off roofs or something like that, right? I can make dumb choices but this tells you god is sovereign over your life and i think we should we need to accept that that's so comforting we can rest in that that god is sovereign over our lives and we've even seen we've seen god haven't we we've seen god frustrate the plans of the wicked when they're coming after paul paul's life has been in danger after danger after danger i mean his life has been on on a line just over and over and over and god just keeps frustrating the plans of the wicked through his promise providence it's an amazing thing. So be encouraged by that. But here, this miracle is also functional. This is, it has a very functional purpose. So for one, it's going to be faith-affirming in that Jesus fulfills his promise, right? Jesus promised you're going to Rome. Paul, Paul makes it to Rome. Second, it's fulfillment of a prophetic statement made by Jesus back in Luke chapter 10, right? Same author who wrote Luke wrote Acts. Luke 10, Jesus said that his disciples would tread on serpents and not be injured. Or maybe we can think of Mark 16, the comment about picking up serpents and not being hurt. Well, kind of ironic that you see this in the book of Acts, too. His apostles, not being injured, not being hurt by the serpent here. But it's also used to draw attention. This is the main reason. Uh, I think at least one of them. Uh, but it's used, this miracle is used to draw the attention of the Maltese to Paul. Okay, God's going to use this snake bite, this miracle, miraculous healing to draw the Maltese's attention to Paul. Out of all the people on this ship, God directs the attention to Paul. That's why he allows this, because Paul carries the gospel. Okay, And God wants the Maltese to hear it. And it becomes a catalyst for Paul to meet the leading man on the island named Publius. like right? uh, Verses 7 through 9, verse 7. Now in the neighboring parts of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us warmly for three days. Did you catch that? welcomed us and entertained us warmly for three days and it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with a recurring fever and dysentery and Paul went in to see him and after he prayed he laid his hands on him and healed him and after this happened the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and being cured so no doubt uh, this, this man hears about the shipwrecked crew and the miracle, and he invites them over to his estate, essentially. This man has land. He's got an estate. He's a, he's a wealthy and, and leading man on the island. He's probably a governor for Rome in some way. But notice, again, the extraordinary hospitality that this man exhibits here. He shows them. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing. Okay, that how much this hospitality keeps coming up. But while they are with Publius, Paul learns that his father is sick with a recurring fever and dysentery. And apparently, uh, I was looking into this and what it was, There apparently there was a microbe in the goat's milk on Malta that brought recurring fever for weeks, months, or even years you might be out with this thing. And it was recurring. Uh, it was... It was pretty ugly. It was a gastric, internal, like intestinal microbe. And, uh, man, I'll just say this about it because I don't want to get into too much information here. But uh, I would much rather be bitten by a viper and just die than to get that bug that that man had. It was gnarly. And uh, it was horrible. But Paul, proven to be the friendly person that he is, right, He says, let's go pray for this man. Let's see if we can heal him. And uh, he prays, he lays hands on him, and the man's healed. And before long, everyone on the island is now coming to Paul to be healed. And what's interesting about this account, and I think why Luke includes it, is because the account echoes, really, a healing account um, with Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 40, where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, in both cases, Paul in Malta and Jesus in Capernaum, the relative of a host is healed and then pre- before you know it just everybody is coming to him in great numbers to be healed. Uh, it's basically like an echoing, heal- it's, an, it's a healing account that's echoed uh, between Jesus and Paul and I think this is just another intentional parallel between jesus and the apostles and this is not the first time we've seen this right if you've been with us through the book of acts this is a parallel that luke is setting up so that we understand uh, who jesus is and who the apostles are and how the this the apostles are actually a continuation of jesus's ministry remember acts chapter 1 verse 1 says all that you know it's just it speaks of jesus's life and ministry as only the beginning of all that Jesus began to do and teach, right? So, Jesus' life, his ministry, death, burial, and death burial, resurrection—it's only the beginning of what Jesus began to do. Why? Because through the apostles, by the Holy Power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to minister. Jesus continues to act through his apostles. It's also uh, functional. In that Paul had many many critics in his days. I mean read second corinthians you'll you'll hear it. you'll read all about it, right uh, he, people criticized him, they doubted his apostleship, that sort of thing. but well, Luke is including this to show us like these kind of parallels that uh, that Paul is an apostle he's the real deal that's why we have this record partly, and then we've even seen a lot of parallels made between Peter's miracles. Parallels between Peter's miracles and Paul's miracles. Peter in the first half of the book of Acts, or the first portion, and then Paul in the second, to show us that Paul is just as qualified to be an apostle as Peter is. Okay, so, uh, the miracles, they're, they're not an end in themselves. It's not a miracle just to have a miracle. This is, these miracles are given to the apostles or the gift of miracles, to draw people's attention to the gospel message that they preached. The miracle takes place. People say, whoa, what's happening over here? And then they hear the gospel, and they believe unto eternal life. That was the purpose of them. We need to keep that in mind. Remember, as you read through the book of Acts, that, that there is at this time a massive Progress of revelation that has taken place, right with Jesus' coming and, and the the new covenant, the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God was unmistakably in this transitional age, unmistakably confirming his apostles with extraordinary miracles, signs, and wonders in an extraordinary number right, that we just don't see in any other area. I mean, when God gives revelation in the Old Testament, you see miracles. God's giving revelation during this time, new revelation, right? The New Testament's being written. He's affirming it, supporting it with with the miracles, the signs and wonders, confirming the message, confirming all of that revelation that they're giving. Now, the difference, however, between the apostles and Jesus is that Jesus would heal in his own name, right? Jesus would just heal in his own power. The apostles, like we see here, have to depend on Jesus' power. They have to pray. So they're praying for healing. And that's really the pattern that we assume today, is it not? Uh, we pray, we pray for healing, and we accept God's will no matter the outcome. And we, we even have record of Paul just, you know, leaving Erasmus, uh, Erasmus, I think it was, sick at Miletus. You know, it didn't always happen. So we pray according to God's will and we accept it, knowing that he's good no matter what. Let's look at the arrival in Rome now in verses uh, 10 and 11. We'll start there. They showed us many honors, and when we were about to set sail, they supplied us with everything we needed. And after three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for it's figurehead. So the Maltese, uh, they shower their guests with all of these, these gifts and, and all the supplies that they need as they're leaving. They're, again, just very generous, very hospitable, sacrificial with their time and resources. And uh, this takes place in verse 11. He says after, after three months. This would have been the early spring for them, February of A.D. 60. So the year 60. They board another alexandrian ship wouldn't you if you just got wrecked on an alexandrian ship wouldn't you be excited about getting on another one (laughs) can't say that i would have but you know uh there is a difference between this ship and the last one luke says that uh this grain freighter this alexandrian alexandrian ship had uh, a figurehead on it the last one didn't this one has uh, the figureheads of Castor and Pollux on it. These are the, the twin gods, the twin Greek gods. You know, brothers uh, on, on the front. Um, I think this is just more irony and more satire by Luke because Castor and Pollux were viewed as the saviors and protectors of sea travelers. It's kind of like, well, where were they in the last storm, right? Right? Uh, they were also known as punishers of the guilty. So I think Luke's just underscoring here how vain the Greek gods are in this situation. Paul's security, his, his innocence, I mean, this it, they basically the, the, the refuge that they found, all of this, the journey, it has nothing to do with pagan gods. Remember, all these men on the ship were probably praying to their pagan gods and God comes along and says, or Paul comes along and says, no, I'm... I belong to the one true God, you know, and it was by listening to the one true God that they survived that shipwreck. It had nothing to do with the Greek gods, and uh, this is, the rest of their journey is going to have nothing to do with it, whether you're talking about DK or you're talking about Dioskary, the twin brothers. Uh, Paul's life is not in a Greek God's hands, it's in God's hands, the one true God's hands. Uh, verse 12, after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we sailed around and arrived at Rhegium. And a day later, a south wind came up, Came up, and on the second day, uh, we came to Puteoli. Uh, we, there we found some brothers and sisters and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Uh, and that is how we came to Rome. Isn't that cool? They're welcomed. Seven days, that is how we came to Rome. And from there, the brothers and sisters, when they heard about us, came as far as the market of Appius and the three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So, it's a rather uneventful (laughs) uh, uh, journey, the rest of the journey to Rome, and Luke just describes it. Uh, it's pretty boring, really, 60 miles to Syracuse, Sicily, um, another 60 miles or so to the toe of Italy. Like, very little difficulty, but uh, storms, I think, the storms that we go through in life, don't they make you appreciate ordinary, uneventful days? I'm sure these men appreciated ordinary, uneventful travel. But uh, Puteoli, uh was a, a main grain port. Remember, they're on a grain ship. But this was 130 miles south of Rome, and uh, this is probably where some of the prisoners ended up getting off the ship and uh, just basically playing in the gladiatorial games in a colosseum there. This was, you know, a pretty top-notch colosseum at, at, this, at this city. Uh, had the, the floor that receded and everything, you know, to, like with the beasts down below it and people coming up through the floor. Uh, It was just a big show, right, and a bloodbath of one. But, uh, you know, basically second to Rome's Colosseum. But a lot of those prisoners probably ended up here and uh, probably died. Thank God that they had the chance to hear the gospel right before they went. But they landed here and uh, would have taken, like Paul, the Apostle Paul, would have on that, that green stretch in the map, taken the Appian Way to Rome. That would have been five more days of walking but as they're walking, uh, uh, actually upon arrival, they're welcomed by brothers and sisters in Christ, who and they stay with them with, for seven days. Again, another wonderful display of hospitality. And then as they uh, they start walking to Rome, uh, they on the Appian Way they hear, uh, uh, they they meet with some other believers. Some other believers from Rome actually come out to meet them. So they hear about it, and they start walking to meet. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, as far as um, the market of Appius, which is 40 miles south of Rome. And uh, the other location, the three inns, was 10 miles closer to Rome. And we shouldn't be surprised to find Christians in Italy already. I mean, they're here because uh, a lot of them were actually at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, they heard the gospel, they were there, they witnessed all of that, and after the Feast of Pentecost, a lot of them went back home, and a lot of them were from Rome. And so churches, again, just started cropping up in that way, but Paul had written a letter to the Roman church a couple years before this, from Corinth, and talking about how he longed to visit them and share the gospel with them, teach the gospel. That's um, the book of Romans, right? The letter of Romans. And he desired to visit this church, but uh, Paul was only planning to use Rome as kind of a launch pad to go even further west into, like, Spain and that those, those territories. Paul wanted to take the gospel as far as he could. And he never imagined, I don't think, that through all of the difficulties that he's been through, you know, the, the two years at Caesarea, the injustice, misrepresentation you know his the the refusal on part of the the justices to call him innocent to declare him innocent he's used as a political pawn the shipwreck I mean all of this God never imagined that he was going to get to Rome and through all of that be able to now share the gospel with the most powerful man in the world Caesar himself Had not all that junk happened to Paul, he never would have had the opportunity to share the gospel with Nero of all people. Does God not use trials and tribulations for our good? Wow, right? And we'll look next week at uh, Paul's um, release from prison, and he continues his missionary journeys, where he's finally recaptured. At least we'll look at some of the evidence for that. But... um, here we are, four months after they leave the Israel, they finally arrive in Rome and his desires are fulfilled. He always wanted to get there, here it is. Desire fulfilled, God's promise is realized, it says in verse 15 that he gives thanks. It's a good reminder to give thanks for God's answered promises in our lives. It's a climactic moment in the book of Acts. He has, God has faithfully carried Paul to Rome in his sovereignty, in, and in a, in a million different ways that, that we just don't understand or like maybe that he didn't understand. And, and God, God's doing the same thing today. God works in a million ways to accomplish his will in our lives. And, and we'll, if we are just be faithful to do our part, right, God will be faithful to do his part. We can trust God to do his part. We just have to do our part, right? That's not going to understand how and why. God's doing what he's doing and allowing what he's allowing. I'm just going to, that's our job just to remain faithful, to share the gospel with people. And part of our part and part of providing an opportunity for the gospel is, is being hospitable to others, being hospitable. You, you see this in verse 30. So rather than being imprisoned, Paul, as a, a Roman citizen, is allowed to live in his own rented quarters. Yeah, yeah He he only has this ordinary soldier guarding him now you know it's not even like an elite soldier it's just a regular soldier that guards him and uh, it's from here from his own rented quarters in rome where he will practice hospitality himself he'll welcome all who come to him to hear the gospel message and learn about the kingdom of god so that's at at least four if you just you know if you divide the two the groups of christians that or if you accept as one the two groups of Christians that came from Rome to meet him at the three inns or the Appian, or the market of Appius, whatever, uh, that's four instances of hospitality in the final chapter of the Book of Acts. And at first, that might seem odd. I mean, why would Luke emphasize this Christian discipline and Christian practice of hospitality? In his theme of the advancement of the gospel, well, I think it's pretty obvious, don't you? Relationships are built through hospitality with people, right? And relationships are the bridge to the gospel, right? The gospel is most effectively communicated through relationships. Who was it that shared the gospel with you? probably mom and dad right or your friends and family grandma gra- I mean it's relationships friends coworkers well how do, how does a lot of relationships with your neighbors going to come about it's going to come about through hospitality loving your neighbor inviting them over so it's a, i think it's incredibly fitting to end the, God, the the book of acts with hospitality because this is the way that the book began Acts chapter 1 and 2, what do you see in those two chapters? You see believers dwelling in community. In Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, it's almost like you get a glimpse of the ideal community where it's the word that, that Luke uses was koinonia. It's, it's fellowship. He described them as one heart, one mind, loving each other, sharing their, their goods with others, sharing their resources. They were all in this, this, you know, this beautiful picture of harmony. And if Koinonia means to have in common. That's the kind of life they had. They did life together. They didn't just come to church on Sunday morning and call it, call it good. They actually had Koinonia Fellowship, right? They were meeting in each other's homes. They were meeting in public. They were, they were doing that too, but they were also meeting in each other's homes. The home was such a central part of gospel advancement in the beginning, and I think Luke's trying to get, get us to wake up here and realize it's, it's the way the gospel's going to continue to advance today, It's through hospitality, through the home, through loving your neighbors, inviting them over, that sort of thing. Um, I also just find the emphasis on hospitality incredibly relevant because relationships, again, are the bridges for the gospel. Relationships are fostered through hospitality. Whether that hospitality is, is given to someone else, hey, come on over Right, have a have a meal at our house, or it's actually received. Right, someone invites you over. Hey, take advantage of that. Right, uh, things are going to happen at a dinner table or hanging out after dinner that just wouldn't happen anywhere else. You just start to talk about things. I was even I was reading church history this week, and and I was I read a, a story about a guy named Constantine who was invited over to someone's house. It's not the emperor, but he was invited over to someone's house. Turns out this guy was a Christian. They started talking about spiritual things. He gives him a gospel, copy of the gospel of or the gospels and of Paul's epistles, and, and the guy becomes a preacher. Right? I mean, it came through hospitality, welcoming a stranger in, and uh, I think that. If we want to share the gospel with others and we want to disciple others, it's important to give hospitality and, when provided, receive hospitality. to To be not to be well to be a welcoming person in your heart. You know, you don't have to invite someone over to your house necessarily. That's how we usually think of hospitality, and that might be how you practice it and should practice it. But it's also just having a welcoming spirit to anybody, right? Uh, it's the opposite of xenophobia, right? Being welcome welcoming the differences of others. Um, I can't help but think of Rosaria Butterfield's book. Some of you guys have read it or heard of it. Um, the Gospel Comes with a House Key. That's the name of this book, and it's a story about how this far, far, far just left LGBT plus QRSTUV activist um, was invited over to this pastor's house or uh, for, like, you know, just hundreds of meals, and it was through her, that hospitality and their conversations that she became a Christian. She became a believer. Not once did they even invite her to church. You know, it's just kind of an amazing story. But um, that was the, the emphasis of our engagement project study that we went through last year. The point was basically, if, if you love your neighbor, you wanna, if you want to make disciples, lo- open your home open your home don't isolate yourself you know engage with people invite people over your house doesn't have to be big your house doesn't have to be perfect right how many of your houses are big and perfect right mine's not are you kidding me I got three kids running around my living room and kitchen is about to burst as soon as I get 12 people in there but it's fun you know I I, it's good you don't have to have a, uh, you know, the perfect house. You don't have to have the perfect meal. I've burned the meal several times after inviting someone over. It's embarrassing, but they get over it, right, because they do it too. Uh, we all do it. you just got to be hospitable, and people appreciate that. And, hey, if Paul can invite people over into his prison apartment, I think we can invite people over into our apartments too, right, our dorms. But um, this is relevant too because we're living in a digital age we work online we study online we live online seems like we make friends online I even made a friend online this week and uh, I actually sent him a message to tell him why I wanted to be their friend you know I'd never met them really I know I know of them but I kind of wanted to follow them because they're involved in this archaeological dig over in Israel and I said hey I don't want to just, you know, I get friend requests all the time from people I don't know. I think it's because I'm kind of a public figure now. But it's like, man, if you're going to friend me, like, say, hey, or something, like, tell me who you are. Like, where did did we meet? Because I just have all these friend requests, and I don't even know what to do with them, because I'm like, I don't really know if I know you, you know. But anyway, we we live online, make friends online. We do church online. I put that in quotes, because the church is an assembly of people. Thanks to COVID, Zoom is a household name. Right? Everybody knows what Zoom is. Um, every, every store allows you to get groceries in your car so that you don't actually have to run into anybody. You know, that inconvenience. Right? And go into the Walmart and you have a conversation with someone and they interrupt your plans. Right? Think about this. The digital age, big tech is heavily invested in the metaverse. The metaverse. Have you heard of that? Um, it's a digital parallel universe where through virtual reality through VR you can now socialize with people Uh, you can uh, work and play from home you can I mean real voices it looks like you there's real voices real facial expressions real body language there's even a, uh, a Christian organization called life church designed to reach people in the metaverse weird right Um, Facebook is now called Meta Platforms Incorporated. So they're pushing it pretty hard. But the research, it's just crazy that they're pushing it because the the research is showing right now that even though we should be more connected than ever because of our social media, we're actually more lonely than ever. And it's taking a toll on people in every sort of way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, it's... It's, it's deadly to the next generation. People are really lonely. Social media has had harmful effects on our social skills. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. Um, the relationships that I still have problems with people today, you know, I, I've done what I can, I've made my peace, but the people that I still struggle with are the people who try to write me text messages and letters. Because there's no communication there. It's just one-sided, and it's there's no tone, there's no body language, no facial expression, and so you never really reconcile. But this is the go-to, because we're so awkward with social skills. I'd rather, I'd rather have friends on my phone that basically entertain me, and I never actually have the mess of a real relationship. So... This is why I submit we need to get real and be hospitable Uh, in a digital age. We need to get real today. I mean, deep down, we all long for real, meaningful community. Please tell me you long for that. Please tell me that's why you're here. That's why I had us pass the peace this morning and greet one another. That's an ancient deal designed to make sure no one slips in and slips out without ever being greeted by a, you know, make sure there's no strangers here and you're not worshiping beside a stranger. That's the whole point of that. Because they understood fellowship is important. Koinonia fellowship is critical. Um, We were made for real meaningful community. In fact, one of the inventors of the virtual reality stuff, this guy, Thomas Massey, uh, I think he's now a senator, but he invented a deal where you can touch something that's fake and feel it, like it's a virtual reality. It's just messed up, and uh, that guy who invented that virtual reality stuff wants nothing to do with virtual. Virtu- wants virtually nothing to do with it anymore. Right? Pun intended. This guy is he's he's pretty awesome. He actually uh, built. His own house on his farm in kentucky out of the wood on his land and the rocks on it i mean by hand carved uh just you should you should you should look at it you should you can watch it it's in the in the footnotes the the footnote there but basically he just wants things that he can touch now he's he was in the virtual reality world so long he doesn't want anything to do with it anymore he says, I just want to touch everything. I want something that's real. And I think young and old people are longing for relationships that are real. There's real contact, real friends. You know, we're tired. I hope you and I are tired of fake news, fake politicians, and fake friends online that we don't even know. Right? You want, I want, I don't know about you, I want real friends. I want real community. Real Laughter. Not when I'm just laughing at something on my phone. I want to laugh together with people. I want real conversations, real agreements, real disagreements, real experiences together, real love, real care, real mutual support where we're doing life together. I hope I hope you guys want that too. That's attractive in a selfish world, when you open up your home and you invite people into your lives, and and, man, it's just, again, it's a bridge to share the gospel. Forgiveness of sin, new spiritual life, hope, meaning, and purpose. So this guy's hospitality, this is something that we need to take seriously. In the Old Testament, God told Israel, you welcome the stranger and the foreigner, because you were once a stranger and a foreigner. You display my grace to other people. In the New Testament, hospitality is a virtue required of church leadership, of elders. Why? Again, it's just so powerful. It's so Christ-like. We were once strangers and, and travelers in our sin, but strangers to God, but Christ, think about this, Christ left his home in the heavenly places. He came into a world where he was not welcome. As Hebrews puts it, he was cast outside the gate. So he basically became unwelcome so that we could become, so we would be welcomed in, into God's house, the family of God. Okay, he 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 kind of like the Maltese showered all those blessings on Paul. So Jesus Christ showers on us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, Ephesians says. And someday, and these aren't just gonna get this isn't just gonna be spiritual, he's actually gonna come again and welcome us into the Father's house. John 14. Guys, sometimes we think of heaven as this purely spiritual place, where a metaverse maybe, where we're all just floating around in another dimension, um, I don't know, playing harps on clouds, that sort of thing. But for eternity, we're going to enjoy, guys, real community forever in a sin-free new earth and new Jerusalem in resurrected bodies in Revelation chapter 20 through 22, right? New earth, new resurrected bodies, real, tangible community, very much unlike the metaverse. And if the if the faith is most effectively translated through relationships, and it is, I would cur- encourage us this morning, this is what I want to do, I want to encourage us to, to love others through hospitality, to invite someone out for coffee, invite them over to your house, uh, just, Maybe challenge yourself this year. Less screen time, more face-to-face time. Less face time, more face-to-face time. You know? There's a, there's a trend out there this year, and you can see it in one of the pictures, but everyone takes their phones at dinner time, and they stack it on the table. And the first one to touch their phone, or if they touch their phone during the meal, then they do the dishes, or they pay the tab. kind of like that. So i just in challenge us to unplug this year, have fun together, pray together, study God's Word together, eat together, get outdoors together, go sledding, go hiking, whatever, play some board games, join a small group. Just do real community. Do real community, build community, foster community with your neighbors, and um, maybe start with, with prayer. Lord, who do you want me to invite over today, you know, from church? Or which, which neighbor do you want to invite over to my house? So, Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that uh, we, your people, have been shown so much hospitality. Uh, you, were, you were cast out. You were unwelcome so that we could be welcomed. And I pray that, Lord, we would reflect that the sort of hospitality that you've shown us. Because we were, we were once strangers and aliens to God, foreigners. But you've shown us such warm welcome through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray that, pray that it would be said of us, man, those Christians are just such warm and welcoming people. And that through our hospitality, people might be drawn to you. Uh, the ultimate host, the one who was always willing to wash people's feet. The one who would uh, just feed so many people, thousands of people at a time. Lord, just help us to be more like you, that kind of sacrificial host who would be willing to open their hearts and uh, their schedules and their homes so that others might taste of your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.